Hi, writers. Welcome to another episode in our series of podcasts about writing fiction, novels, and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I'd like to begin today about a subject uh, where I have my way, but there are good reasons uh, to do it another way, and that is letting others review our manuscript as we're writing or after we're done with it. Should we show our chapters or our full manuscripts to our friends and family and ask for their advice? Some great writers show their manuscripts to others to elicit their comments. Peter Ackroyd, the biographer, writes of T.S. Eliot, quote, copies of the poem, which was Gerontian, were sent to Mary Hutchinson and Sidney Shift, and no doubt others, for their comments before Eliot got down to revising it. This was typical procedure on his part, since he was self-confessedly hesitant in his judgments. End quote. That's Peter Ackroyd on T.S. Eliot. The author of The Wasteland and The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock was hesitant in his own judgments, Doesn't that make us feel better? I'm hesitant in my own, and maybe you are too, but so was T.S. Eliot. And if he can be, we can be. But most authors, particularly those who've had some success, do not show their manuscript around. If Stephen King or or Neil Gaiman offered to look at your manuscript, It'd be one thing, but having amateurs look at it is another. The word amateur sounds harsh in this context, but that's what non-writers are. They're amateurs. They are like the driver of an automobile. They like the drive and they like the looks of the automobile, but they, they don't know much about the engine and transmission. That's me, certainly, about automobiles. We writers... Uh, reading books on writing, trying to learn, attending classes on fiction, going to workshops, attending writing group meetings, listening to podcasts, and reading novels, not just for pleasure, but to understand how the author is doing it. That is, doing the work of learning about fiction writing and are actually writing. We are professional writers or are trying very hard to be. How can an amateur, our friends and family, know what would improve our writing? The historian Paul Johnson says, quote, there is a difference between writing and the other arts. As Evelyn Waugh often remarked, most people feel they are ignorant of music, painting, and architecture, and therefore can be imposed upon. But they know how to read and write, and therefore the book is not a mystery. That's, end quote, that's Paul Johnson. The novelist and a good writer, Robert Farino, shows his manuscripts to his wife, and they usually end up arguing about it, he says. So the amateur will happily offer you his advice. But how do you know if that advice is worthwhile? For example, there is a difference between a scene and a summary, and we've talked about it before in an early episode. Most of our novels should be scenes, not summary. It's a critical technique, because getting it wrong likely sinks a novel's prospects. Most lay people 
non-writers, don't know the difference. They might, after some pages of reading summary, detect that something isn't quite right, but they won't know what's wrong or how to suggest an improvement. Same with, say, the prospect-killing mistake of beginning our novel with a character getting out of bed and putting on clothing. Your non-writer friend likely know, won't know about the mistake and won't comment on it to you. Or how about a, a point of view that jumps around from one person to another in a scene? Lay readers, non-professionals, don't know about point of view. It's a term of art. It's a technique. They may, after a while, feel that the scenes have an unwanted ethereal quality, a dizzying quality, but they won't know what's wrong. They probably won't be able to comment to you about it. I don't ask my wife, Patty, who is entirely smart and entirely a master of her professional job, about my potential dental problems because she doesn't know anything about dentistry. Even folks who read a lot of novels for pleasure likely won't know much about constructing a novel because they are reading for pleasure. They have, quote, sunk into the dream, to use John Gardner's phrase. They want the enjoyment of reading along, of meeting new people, and being taken to new worlds, of being along on a great adventure. They aren't reading to learn. They're reading for fun. They don't want to know and don't care about how a novel is constructed. They likely don't want to see behind the curtain at the mechanics of a novel, and so haven't picked up those mechanics over their years of reading. So the people you show your chapter to, or your entire manuscript to, likely won't be able to knowledgeably tell you what works and what doesn't. And importantly, too, they likely won't want to hurt your feelings. They aren't going to be too critical. But if you know the person you're going to show your novel to and you know that her judgment is valuable, she may or may not be right about a suggestion, but you trust her to bring an educated eye to it because she knows how things work in novels, that's different. It may be worthwhile to show it to her and ask for her comments. Uh, Charles Dickens sent Edward Bulwer-Lighton a draft of Great Expectations. And Bulwer-Lighton, the author of Paul Clifford, which begins with the immortal line, It was a dark and stormy light, uh, night, Bulwer-Lighton suggested that the last pages of the novel be changed to a more upbeat ending. Dickens did so, and for most readers, it's a much better ending than Dickens had originally planned. He trusted Bulwer-Lighton's judgment. So there's room for disagreement on this subject. As Henry James said, the house of fiction has many windows. There are good reasons to avoid showing your work to others, and there may be good reasons to show it around. I suppose it's up to your personality and uh, your thoughts about the value of uh, the other person's comments. I know here I'm sounding like an economist. Quote, on the other hand... I don't show my work around while I'm writing it. 
you may go along with my sentiments or you you may disagree for good reasons. There are many techniques to make our sentence-by-sentence writing shine, to really get our sentences to wrap around the reader and keep the reader going. And one of uh, my favorite techniques to keep in mind is to make our sentences specific, definite, and concrete. That's as Strunk and White. That's as Strunk and White put it in their classic Uh, the elements of style. If the writer doesn't build the image and make it sufficiently full for the reader, the reader won't do that work either. Here's an old analogy. Writing is like painting. Our job as writers is to fill the canvas. And we should do that by being specific, definite, and concrete. Here are some examples of doing it in what I think is uh, the wrong way and doing it the right way, being specific, definite, and concrete. So we write, a bowl of fruit was on the table. Fruit isn't definite and concrete. This would be better. A bowl of apples and grapes was on the table. That gives the reader an image. Uh, She can see in her mind apples and grapes. The yard smelled of flowers. Well, lots of flowers have different scents. Instead, the writer might try the yard smelled of lilacs. Uh, Lilacs are one of my favorite scents in nature. I was raised in Spokane, Washington, the lilac city, and uh, my parents had a huge bank of lilacs outside their home, and uh, I... I love the smell. So the yard smelled of lilacs gives me a particular uh, scent to think about. It's specific, definite, and concrete. The sky was bright. Well, that's not bad. But how about the sky was bright blue with yellow close to the horizon? That gives a painterly image to the reader. The dog's breath stunk. That's not bad. But how about the dog's breath smelled of rotted cabbage? Well, we know what rotted cabbage uh, smells like, and it's bad. He was skinny. Well, it's good that we're describing our characters. But how about this instead? His neck looked too thin to hold up his head, and his ribs resembled a washboard. Those phrases give the reader an image, a good one. He smoked cigarettes. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's a good way to identify and to paint a, a character, but it's rather generic. How about this? The pack of old goals was in his shirt pocket. He exhaled smoke, then pinched tobacco off his tongue. That gives an image, and it's a good image. She had a cold. Well, that's a generic phrase. How about, she grimaced when she swallowed, then blew her nose into a tissue. Her voice was frogged. There we have an image for the reader. We, we fill the canvas about that character. The house was old and decrepit. Old and decrepit don't give much of an image to the reader. How about this? We're filling our canvas. Paint was peeling from the beams, 
and a section of railing on the front porch was missing. Ivy covered a front window. Here's another phrase, not too involving. She read the romance novel. Doesn't really give an image. Uh, It's not specific, definite, or concrete. Try this instead. She leaned over the novel, her index finger tracing the words across the page as she smiled widely. Isn't that a nice image? Don't we do that when we're reading a novel sometimes? Just We're just enjoying it so much. The reader of your novel is going to say that's how a person does it when she reads that. Amy fed her fish. Well, that's bland. When Amy dibbled pellets into the aquarium, the neon tetras and guppies rose from behind the water ferns. Well, that gives an image that fills the canvas for the reader. I said dibbled, I meant dribbled. These new versions uh, that I've been reading add life to the scene compared to the first version. They are specific, definite, and concrete. They do the writer's work of creating images, and they paint the picture for the reader, which is why the reader has hired the writer. We writers should keep Strunk and White's formula in mind when we're describing things. Specific, definite, and concrete. Let's fill the canvas for our readers. I mentioned in an earlier episode that almost all novels in all genres likely should have a romance involved. And the reason is readers like romance. And it's often a very strong counterpoint to the main tenor of the novel. Readers like reading about love. The London newspaper, The Telegraph, asked 2,000 British women, what was the most romantic line they had ever heard in uh, TV or films or literature? And here's a great list, the most romantic lines. Number 10 is a speech from Colin Firth's appearance as Mr. Darcy in the BBC TV series of Austin's Pride and Prejudice. Quote, In vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you wish you were in the room to actually watch him say those things and watch her reaction? Number nine. But for now, let me say without hope or agenda to me, you are perfect and my wasted heart will love you. That's from a 2003 movie, Love. Actually, I I didn't see the movie, but I like that line. Number eight. Thomas Hardy's novel, Far from the Madding Crowd, quote, And at home by the fire, whenever you look up, there I shall be. And whenever I look up, there will be you. That's Thomas Hardy. Isn't that wonderful? Number seven. I love you. I really love you. Ditto. That's from Ghost, the movie Ghost. Number six. 
I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. That's from the movie Notting Hill. Isn't that terrific? Don't you wish you could hear that from someone? Number five is Emily Bronte's line from Wuthering Heights, quote, Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. Number four, the New Year's Eve party scene from When Harry Met Sally, quote, When you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? Number three, in the movie Titanic, a frozen and fearful Jack tells his sweetheart Rose, quote, Winning that ticket, Rose, was the best thing that ever happened to me. It brought me to you. And I'm thankful for that, Rose. I'm thankful. You must do me this honor, Rose. Promise me you'll survive. End quote. If you can watch that movie and not tear up at that scene, you're, you've got a, a stonier heart than I have. Number two. Actress Jennifer Grey to Patrick Swayze in the 1987 movie Dirty Dancing. Remember that movie? Quote, I'm scared of what I saw. I'm scared of what I did, of who I am. And most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. End quote. That's Jennifer Grey. Number one, the most romantic line, quote, my heart is and always will be yours. These are, other, uh, these are uttered by Edward Farrar to Eleanor Dashwood in the director Ang Lee, Ang Lee's 1995 screen version of Jane Austen's novel, Sense and Sensibility. Well, I like reading these lines because I like romance in novels and I like writing about them and it's nice to see how others have done it. And boy, have they really done it. Strong sentence-by-sentence sentence writing is made up of lots of techniques, and here's a good one, one of my favorites, and that is avoid changing a verb to a verb object. I like th this small technique, and it's one that we can, we can take home today and be better writers because of it. A sentence is more powerful when the action is the verb rather than the object of the verb. Here's an example. She gave him a shove. Here, gave is the main verb, while the action, shoving, isn't the main verb, but rather is the object of the verb. Gave isn't a strong verb, and shove is. She shoved him is, strong, is a stronger sentence because the action, shoving, is the verb. Here's another example. She took a step isn't as strong as she stepped. Took a deep breath isn't as strong as he breathed deeply. She gave a look at her isn't as strong as she looked. She gave a yell. Here, gave is the main verb and yell is the object. It's not as powerful as she yelled. He gave a jerk. She gave a laugh. He took a walk to the park. She gave him a pinch. <laughs> he took a look at the car. He gave her a wink. She took a shot at the target. The words gave and took are often giveaways. 
In fact, try this. I've done it myself. You can do a global search of your document, uh, control F in, in most systems. Up will, pop, uh, up will pop a box. Type in gave and then look through your document and you'll be shown these verb forms. Gave a, gave a wink, gave a shove. And you might try changing them. The same with the word took. Bring up your global search and look for the word took. And you might be able to change a number of sentences into a stronger form. I've done that. It's so easy. I, I, it's because I think like this. She gave him a pinch. Well, that's how I think, and so that's what I wrote. But that's not as strong as she pinched him. Let's talk about another sentence-by-sentence technique. And I want to mention this small technique, and it's a very small technique, but something we as writers should avoid. Why? Because it's bad writing. It's boneheaded writing. And it involves useless analogies. A writer wants to compare one thing with another and often uses an analogy. An analogy is a, is a comparison of like features between two things. Some analogies are similar, uh, similes and metaphors, but let's say the writer wishes to describe the size of a cat. She can't think of anything exactly the size, so she writes, Fluffy, fluffy was the size of a large mouse. The word large here robs the image of force. How large is large? As large as a rat? Or as large as a Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloon? And it shows a laziness in writing. The writer couldn't think of an accurate analogy, so she supersized a mouse. The dog looked like a small horse. The house had as many rooms as a small mansion. What do you call a small mansion? You call it a house. The house had as many rooms as a house. <laughs> the cereal was almost as sweet as candy. The writer here, which is me, couldn't think of anything really sweet, so she made candy almost as sweet. We should be bold. Say it and be done with it. The cereal was as sweet as candy. The reader knows you aren't being precise right down to the chemical composition, you're painting with a broad stroke. License is allowed. Or come up with an analogy that is almost as sweet as candy. The cereal was as sweet as a pear. The water was as cold as Puget Sound's water in the winter after a week of freezing weather. <laughs> he looked like a handsomer Abraham Lincoln. She ran as quickly as a fast dog. These are analogies where the, the writer couldn't think of an accurate analogy, so qualified or intensified a non-accurate analogy. It's weak writing. It's a small thing, but if we put together a bunch of techniques uh, that are strong writing, our sentences will shine. We have come to the end of this episode. I'm sure glad you were along for it. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>